civil liberties during the age of COVID. It affects us all. So you'd think it should be a unifying topic, but it's surprisingly controversial. I noticed an argument that appeared on my Twitter feed a few weeks back where one person was, was debating someone else and they claimed, name a single civil liberty that's actually been violated right now. This is all for public health. It's to beat back a virus. Well, hold on though, I say, can't both those things be true simultaneously? I mean, even if you support all of the restrictions on our lives, aren't they still civil liberties violations? The government is telling you where you can go, who you can see, how far apart you can even stand from other human beings. And, and what if it's not all justified? What redress do we have? Is there anyone asking those questions? Is there anyone standing up for us? Well, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association says that their current focus is on, quote, monitoring the response to COVID-19 to ensure it's based on science and is not unnecessarily intrusive to our liberties. Let's get into how that experience has been unfolding for them so far. Michael Bryant is Executive Director and General Counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. He joins us now. Hey, Michael, how's it going? Good. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. So many, so many things we can discuss right now. So many, so much terrain we can cover. So I guess I want to start by asking you, as you've been watching all of this unfold the past, well, we're getting into a year and a half now. What have been some of the the worst infringements that you have seen, and the ones that have made you and your organization most go, well, hold on a second, let's have a talk here. You know, that's a, that's a difficult uh, question to answer, but I should be able to say that, you know, the top five worst civil liberties infringements over the past year. Uh, I, I'd say um, that recently uh, a, a, an important moment happened on the subject when uh, the Premier of Ontario announced on a, on a Friday in... Um, in April, I believe it was, that the uh, government of Ontario was uh, going to undertake a, a full lockdown again, and that they'd added police powers. And this was where the civil liberties issue arose. They were adding new police powers where the police could stop you on the street without reasonable and probable cause, without having witnessed you committing a crime, and could stop you, detain you, and uh, undertake what in law we call search uh, of the person in that you ask them for their uh, identification and you'd compel them to answer you. Your, your right to remain silent would not apply and you'd get a fine if you didn't answer them. So this uh, uh, led to, in the current uh, climate, with respect to anti-black racism, immediately led uh, our organization and and you know uh, other organizations, in particular, the uh, chiefs of police across uh, the province, to react um, negatively. We retained counsel. We said we're going to bring a constitutional challenge. It is blatantly unconstitutional, and uh, the government reversed it. The what it was doing 24 hours later. Now, why did it reduce, uh, reverse what it was doing? Why did it get rid of those police powers? Uh, no question, uh, a big impact was uh, the police forces speaking out against it. And I I'd like to think Canadian Civil Liberties Association was part of that uh, effort to speak against it. But uh, the police forces were in essence saying this violation of rights is not one that we're willing to undertake. 
And I think it was a, a high point in civil liberties, arising out of a low point in civil liberties. And so uh, as such, uh, it's, you know, from my perspective, uh, has a positive ending. Others uh, do not have a positive ending, and we can get into that. But to give you one example right now, um, in the province of Nova Scotia, uh, the uh, attorney general went to a court uh, to through uh, his agent to bring an ex parte injunction, which means nobody else is nobody else is invited uh, to make submissions, and got that injunction from uh, the Nova Scotia Superior Court, and the injunction says no protests, <laughs> no protests during uh, the uh, pandemic number one. And secondly, you cannot promote a protest on the social media, uh, number two, wow. or you will violate this uh, injunction. So uh, this uh, is, uh, and we're uh, challenging it and have reached out to uh, the prosecutor uh, and alerted them that we are going to seek to strike strike out the um, uh, the injunction because it uh, makes absolutely no effort to balance uh, what it wants to do, which is to reduce uh, the chances of infection of the virus uh, on the one hand with the constitutional right to free speech and free assembly uh, on the other hand. Uh, but let's just say even if for some reason we found that the virus works inversely with the indoor-outdoor proven facts, which is that it does spread outdoors. Indoors, you're okay. Outdoors, oh, it spreads. So we say, well, you know what? No protest, folks. You can't gather. And we go, well, okay, even if we know this and even if the participants in, in those protests uh, are aware of that, I mean, uh, Michael, how do we look at that issue of, of how we should tackle this in a democracy? People say, okay, well, you know, I've, I've got a chance at getting this virus out and about in a protest, but I am so passionate about uh, Black Lives Matter activism or pro-Trump activism or anti-Trump activism or or the uh, Palestinian or Israeli or what have you that I'm going to take to the streets because I live in a democracy. I mean, how do we assess mm -hmm. sort of those basic questions? Right. Well, that is, I mean, we are, uh, it, it, mercifully, we're a nation of, of laws and we don't just have to ask the question um, uh, from first principles. And uh, since 1982, we have had a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So that um, feeling that you just described, uh, listen, I live, I live in a democracy and I want to have the ability to go out there and protest, that is a, an activity that is a protected right under the Charter. And the Constitution says in Section 1 of the Charter of Rights that uh, all laws and government actions have to comply with this Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which includes the freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, and in particular, the right to protest. So if you're going to limit the right to protest, in other words, by law, uh, then it's, uh, from my perspective, I'd say it's like diamond cutting. Uh, you, you had, you'd better not use an axe to cut the diamond, because if you do, you're going to violate the human right. And the way that uh, governments have successfully navigated through the charter while uh, uh, taking the uh, public health precautions has been to uh, try and uh, do its best to accommodate the right, which means, uh, you know, in the case of a protest, uh, 
we have international examples uh, of protests taking place consistent with public health advice. So uh, right near the beginning of the of the pandemic over a year ago, there was a socially distanced masked protest in a uh, huge open area uh, in Israel that mm. took place. Uh, that is videotaped and photographed. And it was a beautiful illustration of um, uh, the uh, respect for uh, civil liberties on the one hand and the need on the other hand to uh, put into place public health uh, precautionary principle. And that that's how that ought to be worked out. And instead, it's not a binary black or white uh, debate. Uh, if it is, then it, it, the debate's clear. The government does not have the ability to limit these rights, except where it's necessary and proportionate. Uh, proportionate. That's an interesting term, and I wanted to get your thoughts on how proportionality is playing out here. Uh, one thing that's always frustrated me, or, or that I thought is a bit perplexing, is there's these videos that do the rounds of someone at a grocery store or a Costco who's being dragged out by the police because they refuse to wear their mask. They say that, well, I don't know what they're is maybe they'll say they have a, a medical exemption or they consider themselves a conscientious objector maybe they're conspiracy theorists maybe they just didn't feel like wearing the mask that day i don't know so you got one guy out of 200 who doesn't want to wear the mask and i kind of look at this and i go okay well what's on it to you buddy you're just in the store 15 minutes just put on the mask who cares but at the same time it's like okay one guy out of 200 why do we even have to call the cops on them why can't the cops just say here's your 20 dollar ticket or your 40 dollar ticket i mean why does it have to get to the point uh that it does in this situation i mean are uh, Michael, have we had a proportional response this past year and a half to to everything? I, I, you know, I think that the uh, by and large, let's just take masking. Um, that the instances where somebody has not worn a mask has been asked to wear it, has refused, and then um, either a um, security guard or a police officer is called in right. and the person is removed. Extremely marginal, very rare. Uh, I know that there are, you know, we know of some of these because they're on YouTube, but it, it, they, we at, you know, Canadian Civil Liberties Association monitor uh, this type of activity. And, you know, in our view, that's an area where the police officer ought to be exercising discretion. And um, the, uh, the instances where somebody's not going to leave the store uh, under any circumstances um, uh, we are, are so rare uh, that I, I, I'm not sure it's worth going down the rabbit hole of talking about right. you know, what the de-escalation would look like. I mean, I think that the way you would manage that is you just have to give that person, you'd have to say, look, either you're going to leave or we're going to sequester you and, uh, and you know, try and de-escalate this and we're going to, you know, inconvenience everybody for an hour and we're just going to wait until you either put on this mask or walk out the door. Uh, but I'm not going to seize you and throw you out uh, because it's just not necessary at this point. So those are extremely rare circumstances uh, I do not believe the police need to be called nearly as often as they do get called. You know, that's a, a, a perfect example of one of the worst parts of our uh, justice system, which is that it's uh, uh, driven by these 911 calls, uh, the, you know, uh, the large proportion of which involve people not, I mean, not 
not all, but many people uh, abuse the 911 system uh, in the sense that they're calling 911 in circumstances when they shouldn't. And often we have some research that shows that there's um, people with a lot of anxiety, uh, uh, may have a mental disorder, may be suffering from mental illness, right. and that's driving the complaint more than anything else. And I think a lot of the police calls, whether it involves a uh, mental health disorder or not, they are driven by um, fear and anger uh, that is more to do with the pandemic than mm. it has to do with civil liberties and actual public health facts. Speaking about people being fined, uh, how should, uh, how do you feel about this, this, uh, maybe it's a growing sense that some people have that just, well, just give me the ticket because they've seen a couple governors in the U.S. say, okay, I'm doing forgiveness for all of these fines that have been issued. We see some legal rulings that see that things are maybe not necessarily going to be upheld. I, I also think, you know, it's interesting you point out the police forces in Ontario said, uh -uh, we're not doing this, you know, stop and identify everyone. We've got mayors who are speaking out against some of the restrictions, leading you to think, Think, well, if I get ticketed for, you know, doing this outdoor soccer game when a mayor speaking out against it, if, if I even get a court date, you know, a few months later, can't I just say, hey, look, the, the officials don't even support these laws. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, isn't this whole thing legally a mess, Michael? Uh, it, it's 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 complicated, that's for sure. And I think it was uh, a mess a year ago. Uh, but most of most uh, police forces have uh, learned to exercise some discretion. And most police forces don't want to enforce and don't uh, make it their business to uh, crack down on what amounts to Provincial Offenses Act offenses, hmm. um, uh, in part because they feel that they should be spending time on real, uh, more serious crimes under the criminal code, uh, as opposed to, in essence, handing out what amounts to the equivalent of a speeding ticket. Uh, to people, um, you know, a year ago for sitting on a park bench. Uh, we had to work out a few things. Firstly, who's who has the authority to give these tickets and what kind of training do they have? Well, if they're bylaw officers, which in Toronto they were and in other cities they were, well, then they might not have the training to understand what it would what it means to exercise discretion. But to, to answer your question directly, I think that um, uh, people can certainly make uh, defend uh, their tickets. And uh, I think if they believe that the ticket was wrongly issued, should do that. Um, I believe that uh, there ought to be an amnesty put into place, possibly uh, at the appropriate time. Um, uh, and it would have to be, you know, passed by law, uh, by executive councils or the, and or the uh, various legislatures and uh, territories to, uh, to reflect the fact that there was some overzealous uh, ticketing that took place and uh, to reflect the fact that there's a disproportionately high number of people who were ticketed who were racialized minorities who were mentally ill who were homeless folks so uh, but uh the law is still the law we have a rule of law so showing up and saying even the premiers for example or the mayor isn't a big fan of this law doesn't matter right. uh that's not a defense uh, the defense is you know, I um, uh, either wasn't doing this or, um, you know, you uh, either make a constitutional argument yourself or you retain counsel to do that or you get CCLA's help to do that and make the case that the law itself was disproportionate and therefore violates uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And, you know, we may, in fact, get some 
results from Provincial Offenses Act courts, from superior courts, divisional courts uh, across the country that then become a precedent uh, and used as a defense in other courts. We've addressed a lot of this, by the way, for your listeners uh, to check out on our website, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, ccla.org. We put out two reports on this business of uh, ticketing and uh, the enforcement of COVID rules. And uh, we put one out in the in June, of 2020 and we put one out two weeks ago and both show the patterns uh, and the um uh i guess the uh, variation that exists regionally in canada when it comes to the enforcement of uh covid rules um there's a there's you know basically a, a different approach in western canada than mm-hmm. in Quebec and in Atlantic Canada. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting angle for sure. Uh, Michael Bryan, I really want to get your thoughts on on the civil liberties conversation and issues sort of more generally now and also what, what you predict are going to be the big ones uh, kind of moving forward or, or what are the big ones right now. But I guess as, as a bit of a segue question, I mean, right now during COVID, this has been sort of civil liberties conversations on, you know, on high octane or whatever. Like this has been major conversations uh, that, that, that are a greater volume than we usually have. I I mean, how have you reflected on uh, on civil liberties in general this past year, and, and how should the public sort of reflect on, on the issue? I, I believe that overall, uh, more people are aware and have uh, put some thought into their civil liberties during COVID than ever uh, in recent memory. Uh, certainly not uh, during the life of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, We've never had a moment where so many people were having their personal liberty or free speech um, or right to privacy uh, or a presumption of innocence. Uh, they, they were, I mean, literally millions of people were having their constitutionally protected rights limited by uh, governments across the country. Uh, Uh, more often than not, in a way that was consistent with the Constitution, but caused them to ask the question. You know, I ran into somebody, I was talking to somebody uh, the other day, and he said to me, uh, not knowing what I did for a living, he said, I just didn't know that governments could do this kind of thing. I I didn't know (laughs) that governments could tell us, you know, for example, you got to wear a mask. You can't go here. You can't go there. Uh, You know, he was familiar with the criminal code, but he didn't think that governments could shut down businesses and so on. So uh, I think that people are more aware of it, uh, number one, which is positive. Secondly, uh, I'd say most governments respected uh, civil liberties most of the time during the pandemic, but some governments did not. Uh, Some governments really did play politics with COVID. And, uh, you know, a good example of that, I think, is this injunction that was brought in Nova Scotia uh, to to prohibit the um, the uh, protests. I'm, I'm not for a moment saying that the judge was doing something political. The judge was being judicious. Uh, and, you know, we the way to disagree with that decision uh, is to appeal it or to try and set it aside. So I'm not complaining about uh, the judgment, although we may complain in court. Uh, but it uh, the the other area that jumps to mind is the restrictions on mobility rights. And, and my 
One of my biggest concerns coming out of the pandemic in terms of the long-term impact on rights is with respect to our mobility and citizenship rights. Namely, uh, in every other country that I know of, uh, no government even tries to stop you from going from one part of the country to another if you're a citizen of that country. No U.S. government even uh, with all the variety of a different approaches, uh, state to state, has tried to stop, for example, somebody from Mississippi from crossing over into Arkansas. It just hasn't happened uh, in the states. And it makes Canada look a, more like the European Union or, um, you know, a, a transnational Hmm. Uh, organization of provinces than a country and it really violates uh the the i think the underlying thesis of this country of uh, 1867 wh when we were uh, a bunch of separate um uh, colonies and nations and decided no, no no we can do more together than we can apart so let's let's unite uh, be one country, build a railroad across this country, and uh, and do that together. And whereas with COVID, uh, the you know the um, the come from away province of Newfoundland uh, was one of the first to say uh, not come from away, but stay away. Wow! Uh, if you're not a resident of this province and so we brought a challenge in newfoundland uh and that that challenge is now going to the court of appeal it's a test case other provinces have done the same thing and uh you know i believe that the impact of that is going to be significant because uh, this is a constitutional right under Section 6 of the Charter and under the Division of Powers uh, in the 1867 Constitution. We're supposed to be able to go where we, you know, uh, into another province, into another territory uh, without any restriction. And the idea that uh, provinces can have border guards at the provincial borders, I think, is wrong. Uh, I and I, I haven't seen a single instance in which it's been justified based on the test of necessity and proportionality with um, uh, reference to evidence uh, and uh, uh, and and that and I'd say probably the protest rights and the free speech rights are the areas that got the roughest ride during the pandemic. Are you worried that maybe some of these restrictions have somewhat become normalized in terms of the next crisis, the next incident? Even if you don't 100% need these things, many people today have now accepted the fact that, yes, government can tell you what you can and can't do uh, down to the micro details of, you know, who you can invite into your home, how far apart you have to stand uh, for other people. I mean, have have we crossed a line right now that, that perhaps, you know, psychologically or, or democratically, well, maybe it's going to make it easier to cross that line again? I think it depends on the area. Uh, and uh, like, firstly, I, I want to say, I don't know exactly uh, what has been happening in First Nation Reserves, but I've received um, feedback from First Nation Reserves people who have said that a number of First Nation governments have uh, been disproportionate and highly restrictive uh, within the reserve. So, uh, can you give me an example compared to? Uh, there may be a lasting impact, 
an example of one First Nation is that they uh, council invited the RCMP uh, to engage in warrantless entry into people's homes. And, uh, you know, that's an example. Uh, you know, if, in other words, if the police are walking by and they see a bunch of shoes on the front step, they're allowed to enter. And, you know, we would take, we would, we would say, no, you need to go get a warrant to do that because the, um, uh, the, the bar, the bar is higher than that for warrantless entry and, uh, and the special circumstances that would allow someone to enter a home. Uh, uh, that's on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, like I said, I'm not going to repeat myself with respect to mobility rights. My concern is that that's going to stay and we're going to have provincial borders, uh, in place in this country, uh, that will stay, uh, beyond, um, the the life of the pandemic uh and uh thirdly i i I, i'm concerned about something that never got fixed or hasn't been fixed to date uh but has to get fixed uh going forward and that is firstly uh the executive orders the cabinet orders the regulations that get passed by these governments that set out what the restrictions are they have got to be released uh, prior to uh, going into legal effect. And they ought to be released, in my view, uh, in draft form, um, even before they go to uh, uh, provincial or territorial or federal cabinets. Uh, when legislation passes, uh, it's not at all difficult to follow a bill uh, through to a law online uh, using the various legislative assembly um, Hansard uh, online. But they would say Not we're in an so. emergency and we don't have time right. for that. So how would you sort of respond to that? I mean, I take your if point. It's something to see this have, stuff brought yeah. in, you know, immediately. You must no, follow this yeah. and opposition can't even talk about it. Yeah, but well, if it's an executive order, it's not something that would come up for debate from the opposition until it was brought into law, and then it could be criticized. But you know, we we are, uh, uh, as I said, a nation of laws, uh, not people. Uh, so this is not. It, it doesn't matter if the premier or a prime minister uh, stands up at a podium and says, "Here's what you have to do." It doesn't matter. They have no legal authority. Uh, themselves to uh, tell people what to do. It's the legal orders that uh, provide the authority to restrict people's freedoms. And so we need to know what they are when they become clear, uh, sorry, when, when they are passed. And some provinces are great at that. And when the premier stands up and makes an announcement at a podium, says, here are the new rules, they attach the law. The idea that they don't have time to write the law I mean, if they don't have time to write the law, then then it's not a law. Uh, they have to take the time to get it right because that's how our country works. We we're not we're not an anarchy which turns on the whims of a despot. We are a nation of laws under our constitution, and if there's going to be a new law passed that tells people what to do and it affects their constitutional rights we need to know what it is but the federal government and a number of provincial governments will announce here are the new rules and then you won't get the law for two or three days so if you're a business that needs to comply with the law uh you can't go on what was said at the podium you need to know exactly what the law says so that needs to be changed and secondly our justice system has got to grow up 
and uh, and permit the capacity of ccla or any other public interest litigant or individual to bring a matter before the courts and have it go through the courts in timely fashion uh we you know, we have shown our system to be so slow and plagued with delays during COVID that we now embarrassingly have a situation where in the United States, the U.S. Supreme Court have issued uh, a dozen decisions on government laws uh, and the Bill of Rights during COVID, a dozen decisions. In Canada, we, we don't have a single case that has even gone to the Supreme Court of Canada on this issue. We have one case that I know of going to uh, the Newfoundland Court of Appeal, but you know we're waiting for the hearing on that. And that's it. Uh, now, you can say, oh, they're a lot more litigious than us in the United States. Well, right. are they a lot more litigious because they've got a better justice system? Or is it a, is it a mm. cultural moment? I can tell you that it's too difficult and too expensive and too slow to bring public interest litigation in Canada. Uh, and that, that has got to change. That doesn't mean we're going to stop doing it. We're, we're going to do it more than ever. Uh, and we have. And we've gone to court more than any other organization uh, during COVID. Uh, but we um, often won't simply because we know that by the time uh, a matter got heard, uh, the issue would be moved, right. and we and you know we don't want to waste any we don't want to waste everybody's time with that. One thing I find so interesting about this conversation, Michael Bryant, is we're listening to you talk about uh, challenging the government. You got to shake up the system, you know, public interest law and so forth. And we go, wow, you know, he's really sticking it to the man. Well, hold on a second, though. You used to be the man. You held a number of cabinet yeah. uh, posts in the Ontario government right. uh, under Dalton McGuinty's uh, tenure as premier, including as attorney general for a few years, where. You know, if the p pandemic had hit then, you would be one of the people uh, faced with making these decisions at cabinet and also putting together uh, many of these laws that, that we currently would have in place. How have you reflected on this in this context that you're really someone who's, who's seen things from both sides? Well, I, I mean, I certainly uh, do bring that experience to my job and it allows me to... Uh, um, not just speculate on what an attorney general ought to be doing at the cabinet table and what uh, his or her agents ought to be doing uh, throughout the various governments that are out there. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm also um, uh, aware of the pressure that comes about uh, on governments and what uh, dynamic at a cabinet table would likely be and what the dynamic within a premier's office would be, and I and and as such, uh, you know, I'm I I think that um, we it's safe to say that as a result, we don't bring speculative fishing expedition litigation or challenges. We uh, we do so with the uh, information and knowledge of how government works. Uh, but you know, my. Uh, my perspective and outcome changed dramatically 10 years ago. Um, uh, it, it really, uh, after uh, the accident uh, and the death of uh, Darcy Allen Shepard, uh, I just, uh, my life changed. And uh, it wasn't just with that incident. Uh, I soon found myself uh, spending time with um, indigent and indigenous 
people and spending time in the in the courts defending people, many of whom in mental illnesses and uh, and addictions, and came to see uh, what the system was like for them. Uh, I'm not saying what it was like for me. You can't really build a justice system around how to treat a former attorney general. So I'm not talking about my sure. my circumstances. I mean, I was um, um, obviously humbled by the experience and out of that humility uh, came to learn and see and open up to um, all of the injustices uh, that were taking place. So that was quite a flashpoint saga here in in in, yeah, in Toronto, yeah. in Ontario, yes. all across Canada. It was it was a cultural moment, and people they 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 argued about it amongst themselves. I mean, everybody at the dinner table fought about it. It was almost a, a culture war situation. Uh, the listeners who aren't familiar, where you you had an incident on Bloor Street in Toronto, where there was a bicycle courier who uh, you described the event in great detail in your book, uh, Twenty Eight Seconds. It's it's detailed in a lot of writing there. And at the end of this Twenty Eight Seconds. Uh, the bicycle courier he was he was deceased uh, in this accident that you had with him when you were driving in your vehicle and some people saw this as you know as this sort of connected uh, politician rich lawyer guy in his fancy car and the, uh, a downtrodden uh, individual a first nations gentleman other people said look I, I bicycle down the streets of toronto i walked on them i'm a driver these bike couriers man they are just crazy i could see this incident happen to me well man i understand how that happened well i feel for michael bryant i mean it, it, it was such a flashpoint i mean looking back now what do you think about that as a I, I appreciate you have your points about uh, how you went and you know it's been transformational for you but as as that is a cultural moment how do you reflect on that oh I'll let others reflect on it uh, the, uh, the extent that I reflected on it it's in the book it's in 28 seconds and I really don't have anything more to say about it it's uh, uh, to the extent that it's a cultural moment um, I was a uh, um, um, someone who was a part of it but it's not for me to define what happened or to suggest what happened because i'm i'm an unreliable narrator yeah, fair <laughs> on that front well, but the um but the uh but you know in terms of uh where i sit uh now um uh you know certainly uh, the experience uh, changed me and it's not to say that i uh, think that the glass is entirely empty, uh, nor did I ever think it was entirely full when I was in government. Right. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just a lot more focused on the injustices now than in where my job before was to defend and shore up the justice system. Right. Uh, and to, and to a large degree to, uh, make changes where they were needed. And I did some, but I didn't, uh, do, uh, I didn't undertake the changes that I ought to have, and and I uh, discussed that in the book. Uh, well, let me ask you: not not here, not here to suggest that I um, uh, would uh, would have been the best pandemic attorney. Uh, I think uh, my role, the best place for me to be, is where I'm at right now. Let me ask you before we go: what are those big challenges, those big battles that we have ahead of us with civil liberties. We have a more and more free speech conversations. Uh, I hear some people argue, oh, free speech, that's just a thing, you know, dubious people uh, put forward so they can get away with saying, you know, whatever hateful things we want. We need to tighten down those rules, those regulations. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening in the online world, digital IDs that are emerging. Lots of questions about Bill C-10 right now is a hot button issue in Canada. 
what is the future of civil liberties? Because I feel like it's it's only going to ratchet up soon. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, that data privacy uh, is uh, unquestionably uh, going to be a major issue in for the next ten years. Uh, and as long as Canada uh, continues to uh, have a really old, dated law um, uh, federally, um, we're we're in a very tough spot, and uh, Canadians' uh, privacy rights are being compromised. Uh, because there is no law really to deal with it in Canada appropriately uh, when it comes to protecting consumers. Secondly, um, uh, you're right. I think we'll continue to have uh, debates about uh, uh, really it's equality versus free speech in a nutshell. That's what the debate boils down to. And uh, CCLA, uh, we our job is to uh, protect both and so you know we have to make decisions from time to time where we uh, agree that one needs to be uh, limited uh, in the name of the other um, and lastly uh, I, again I, just to repeat the I think the challenge is to to build a justice system that allows for timely judicial review uh, because right now too much of what the executive branch does goes unreviewed and too much of what the legislative branch does goes unreviewed because the judicial branch is uh, so limited in its capacity to provide uh, timely answers to urgent legal questions. Michael Bryan, thanks so much for joining us today. Really fascinating conversation. Thank you. All the best. Michael Bryant is Executive Director and General Counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Proulx, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.